Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Leonard Leo, and I serve as Executive Vice President of the Federalist Society. It's a pleasure to be here at uh, the University of Michigan Law School with all of you. Some of you may be wondering, why are we here uh, talking about uh, the merits of electing judges, and why are we here talking about state Supreme Courts? Uh, and the reason is because um, uh, while you may not know this from your law school curriculum all that much, state Supreme Courts and state courts are an incredibly important part of the American jurisprudential scene. In fact, uh, one can very um, ably argue, I think, that state Supreme Courts are in many cases where the rubber really meets the road. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 95 to 98 percent of all litigation takes place in the state courts. And uh, I dare say that many of you in this room, when you're practicing law, may end up trying or arguing uh, one of your most important cases, if not your most important case, before a state Supreme Court or in some part of the state court system. And so what we are talking about today, the merits of electing judges, uh, is a very important question uh, that cuts right to the heart of, um, of, our, of our system. And don't take my word for it, both Justice William Brennan in 1976 in the Harvard Law Review as well as just Chief Justice William Rehnquist on several occasions made this very point, that we need to focus our attention on the uh, jurisprudence of the state courts uh, as well as on uh, methods of, uh, of uh, state court selection. And we have um, two of the most talented uh, and um, articulate uh, state Supreme Court justices in the country um, here today. There would have been a third, uh, Justice Harold C. from Alabama, but he had a uh, family emergency and could not be here. So uh, Justice Taylor is sitting in his place and I am standing in uh, as a moderator. Uh, our two participants, uh, Chief Justice Cliff Taylor from the Michigan Supreme Court and uh, Chief Justice uh, Tom Phillips, uh, retired from the uh, Texas Supreme Court now at um, now at um, uh, Baker Botts uh, have a couple of things in common. Both they, they, they both hail from state Supreme Courts that are elective in nature. Uh, Chief Justice Phillips uh, was appointed in 1987 to that court and was reelected uh, and elected to that uh, uh, post as Chief Justice in 1988, 1990, 1996, and 2002. And um, Chief Justice Cliff Taylor has sat on the Michigan Supreme Court, again, an elective court, and he has served on that court since 1997 uh, and has been chief justice of that court since 2005. Uh, again, they are um, uh, two of the most talented jurists in the country uh, on state Supreme Courts, uh, serving on two of the most important state Supreme Courts in our nation, and they have been extremely thoughtful commentators, both on the role of courts generally and on issues of... Um, uh, of uh, selection in the state court systems. So with that said, I'm going to turn the program over to the uh, to our two distinguished speakers. Uh, since I am a little bit new to this game, I'm not sure of the flip of the coin who was going first. All right. Chief Justice Phillips, you're up first. Thank you, Leonard. There are almost as many different ways of selecting state justices and judges as there are states. Uh, we used to have a number of different ways of electing legislators and governors, but over the 200 years of the American experiment, those have pretty much gotten the same in all the states. We've kind of gotten it down. Uh, we know what legislators do, we know what governors do, and we've come up with what we think is, is the best way to choose them. But state judges, we still have reached no consensus on. Uh, I think that's because it's very difficult to ask uh, a political body, uh, anything in the body politic, to come up with a person who's supposed to act in a non-political way. Uh, you all are all familiar with the notion of the anti-majoritarian nature of the courts and the reason they must be that way. Uh, but throughout our history, we have struggled with how to get the politicians to, to give us judges who are 
apart from politics and yet still accountable to the people. So I'll give you a brief history lesson and say that along the way, some states stopped with whatever the dominant method was at that point of time of choosing judges, and, and there they are today. And as a result, we have 50 different systems. If you granulate it finely enough, probably five systems at least, even, even from a broad standpoint. Uh, at the time uh, the first states were formed, uh, and at the time of the American Constitution, there were two main ways of choosing judges. One was by executive appointment either the governor or the governor's council. The other was by legislative uh, selection. Nobody thought of electing judges at the time the federal constitution was framed. Uh, judges were generally beginning to be thought of as an independent branch, but in some states they were also thought of, as they were in England, as a subset of the executive. Uh, appointments did not meet with a lot of favor in the states because there was a, a feeling among the bar that the governor or the legislature, whoever was doing it, were, were putting political cronies and hacks on the bench. And as part of the Jacksonian reform, uh, there was a notion to start electing everybody, and judges were right at the head of that list. Uh, it really came about, it gained momentum with New York in 1846 in a very famous constitutional convention uh, that voted to have all of its judges elected. And uh, by 1861, 18 of the 28 states uh, that were in the Union, at that, well, let me think, were there 20, 31 by then. Anyway, uh, most of them had gone to elected judges, and every new state that came in had elected judges. Every state that held a constitutional convention, except Massachusetts, opted for elected judges. Uh, it was, it, that pressure came from many points. One was Andrew Jackson at times wanting to elect the federal judiciary, so the, the movement of elections. Uh, another point was just every office should be elected. One Kentucky delegate said we were electing everybody but the dog catcher, and if the dogs had the vote, we'd elect him. Uh, and third, there was truly a movement from the bar that felt that they would have a more professional judiciary if the people were making the choice. Uh, small electorates at the time, not all of you would have been eligible to vote in 1846 uh, in the United States. Not many judges. In Texas, when we went to elections in 1850, there were three Supreme Court justices and ten trial judges. That was it for the state judiciary. There were some local JPs. Uh, but that was all we had at the state judicial level. And so small, they, pretty much people knew who they were voting for. Campaigns were pretty easy. You just rolled out a, a barrel of whiskey at the polls. Uh, somebody was not supposed to take a drink from you unless they were going to vote for you. So if, if your barrel was pretty full about mid-afternoon, you withdrew from the race. Uh, maybe you printed up a handbill or two, and that was it. This all changed with the urbanization of America and the formal organization of political parties. We started printing ballots, of all things. Uh, and then they came up with the idea of the state would print the ballot. And so there had to be a filing deadline, and there had to be a way you qualified for the ballot. And the party started nominating candidates. Uh, and guess what? The judiciary, again, became a place you could put a party hack that couldn't make a living in the real world. Uh, and so by 1900, there was tremendous dissatisfaction with this elected judiciary as being pawns of uh, political parties. In 1906, Roscoe Pound made a famous speech, popular causes of dissatisfaction. So cause of dissatisfaction with popular justice in America or something like that. Uh, and a big movement between 1910 and 1930, a number of states went to nonpartisan judicial elections. Uh, Michigan being one of them. They, I don't know when they got their unusual system for how they nominated their Supreme Court, but, uh, but they're, and they had the parties nominate even then, but at the trial court level, it's truly nonpartisan more of the way. But not for the, but not, but, and primaries for below. Primaries, you know, just came in and around 1900 as well. 
first Texas primaries were in 1908, I think. At any rate, uh, a number of states went to nonpartisan judges, and they really, the progressives really thought this was the answer, because they'd been talking about uh, recall of judges, recall of judicial decisions. They thought maybe nonpartisan elections would help, for, make these judges truly what we want again, independent, accountable to the people, yet independent. Well, it turns out, of course, nobody knew who they were voting for. You had these crowded ballots. It was by now getting expensive to communicate to the voters who you were. Uh, and nonpartisan elections came to be seen as a failure where just whoever had the catchiest name won. So in 1940, Missouri became the first state to come up with a hybrid plan called the Missouri Plan or by its supporters, Merit Selection. Uh, Rush Limbaugh I our Russia's grandfather was on the committee that pushed this thing through the Missouri legislature and the constitutional amendment. It's a hybrid system uh, wherein a committee chosen by a diverse group of people screens potential nominees and sends a list to the governor. Governor picks one. Then maybe there's confirmation by the legislature, maybe not. That person then becomes the judge. They're appointed. At the end of their term, they run against themselves in something called a retention election. If they want another term, they sign up. And everybody, everybody who wants to stay on as a judge gets voted on, but in a yes or no election. After World War II, a number of states had constitutional conventions, and we were in a good government uh, political science, public administration, Nelson Rockefeller type mode. And 18 states adopted this merit selection for most of all of their judges, and it looked like it was going to sweep the nation. Well, constitutional conventions stopped with the abortion controversy in Roe v. Wade. It just states don't have constitutional conventions anymore. And when states tried to put just this one reform on the ballot, this one change, the voters didn't like it. The idea of we're going to give up our, our vote. Of course, they were getting more votes with these yes-no, but the idea that, you, you know, you couldn't vote for Smith. You, you voted for the committee to choose another judge was unpopular standing alone. And very few states have adopted merit selection since the late 1970s. And so we're, we're now in a position where most states are with the system they've had. Some southern states have recently gone from partisan to nonpartisan primarily when the Democrats saw the Republicans catching up statewide and they decided to freeze what they had. Uh, but we're in a series of stasis, and yet a time when nobody is happy with their system of selecting judges. Over the last 25 years, various interest groups have discovered several things about these judicial elections. Cliff, can you throw me up my water over there? They have discovered that unlike in a legislative election, people don't really know who their judges are. It's easier and cheaper to come in with a, with a quick campaign that can affect the outcome of, of the vote in a judge race. They discovered that people are very concerned about a lot of the kind of issues judges at the state level here, or that they might hear once or twice in their career, and you can mobilize voters by talking about an unpopular judicial decision that will come out and not only vote on that judge race, but will vote for all of your legislative candidates and executive office candidates. It started with trial lawyers, and it kind of started in Texas, my, my home state. Where the Texas Trial Lawyer Association had been dumping money into legislative races for years, and their candidates generally got slaughtered. And... Most tort law was made by courts. We had most com mostly common law then. So they started running candidates for judge. They got picked people with nice, easy-sounding names and didn't take much money to dominate a race. $100,000, $200,000 could elect a statewide candidate. And they literally took over the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, pretty much it became an adjunct of the Trial Law Association, and they started running in district court races. Business community, of course, organized eventually. <laughs> organized after Pennzoil in Texaco and a bunch of national publicity and started pumping money in these races as well. In the 1990s, this went, uh, this phenomenon expanded to social issues. Uh, and basically, uh, more Republican-leaning groups, I think, were in the forefront of this. Maybe a judge, I mean, now in the 2000s, uh, 
you might have a judge get a same-sex marriage case. Four or five have around the nation. So why not run a campaign about it? Uh, and it may generate some votes for a lot of offices that you really care about more, but people might not buy your whole list of issues on a legislative race. And so slate cards got to be very popular. Uh, and these races are becoming more politicized uh, around the nation. Still, the trial, the tort fight is providing most of the money, uh, but the social issues are providing some of the atmospherics uh, for these races. In 2002, uh, the chance to make these judicial races hot got a big boost when the U.S. Supreme Court decided a case called White that some of, uh, some of you may have read, Republican Party of Minnesota versus White, which struck down an obscure part of the Minnesota Code of Judicial Conduct said judges could not announce their views on disputed public issues. Some lower courts have read that to strike down some of the rules about judges committing to how they're going to vote in particular, on particular issues or pledging or promising to do certain things in office. So now we have a lot more freedom for groups to send out questionnaires that ask them. I mean, when I was running for office, the gun group couldn't say, uh, what's your view of the Second Amendment? They asked questions like, how many stuffed deer heads do you have in your living room? <laughs> and how many times have you taken your kids target shooting this year? Uh, but now the, they can get right at it. You know, if you have this case, what are you going to do? So you have a, a combination of a whole lot of money coming in from trial lawyers and uh, business groups uh, and a lot of pressures on judges regardless of the election system. Uh, and I believe it could be very and ha is being very destabilizing to our justice system. This is, a, this is all the 40 states have some type of election or subject to this, but I think there's less of this type of pressure in a Missouri type or uh, merit selection plan, which is why I'm for that plan. Uh, and it's probably just what I've seen in Texas, uh, which is since 1980, about a third of the judicial races have been opposed. So two thirds of the time you have no choice. In the third that have been opposed, the incumbent judge has lost more than one third of the time. And they've generally lost either on a party sweep or on some type of misinformation campaign. Uh, frequently you have two good candidates running against each other or two bad candidates running against each other, so it's not a very good choice. The election system doesn't work so bad in rural areas where people only have a few candidates to choose from, but in our urban areas it's been a, it's been a true disaster. I mean, we just had an election in Dallas County in 2006 where there were 42 contested judicial races. The Republicans held 41 of these races before the election. They held zero after the election, uh, you were asking people to choose the relative merits of 84 folks uh, of whom they'd never met or heard of. They'd never heard of most of them, and probably most of the voters had never met any of them. And, of course, they had no other cue other than a party label. If it had been nonpartisan, they would have probably just chose the shortest name every time. They wouldn't have done any better. So if you have one judge in your county, elections work pretty good. If you have a huge number of judges, I mean, truly, Trial judge level, we mostly know what we want. You want somebody that's smart, hardworking, fair, uh, neutral, uh, and uh, good demeanor. Make people feel good even when they lose. I would trust almost anybody, uh, the janitor at the courthouse, to sit down and interview those people and choose 42 of them rather than just throw a bunch of names out and let people at random choose them. So we've had trouble with this election process. And I think in the long run, the open elections, particularly with a party label, makes people behave less like how we want judges to behave and more like legislators in robes. And the reasons for that are, are fairly simple. One, the judge has a, such a different function than another elected official that it seems to me the structure of how they get and keep their jobs ought to be different. And when, as in Texas, you elect a legislator and a judge in precisely the same way, the judge is going to think like the elected legislator. They're going to see themselves as having a group of constituents, as having a platform, uh, as having campaign consultants, uh, and somebody who they, uh, you know, were elected to represent. And they're going to act, in my opinion, in a more activist way, maybe to the left, maybe to the right. 
but not as someone who respects the idea that they're really not making these rules, that the people through their constitution and their elected representatives are, are former judges through the long process of stare decisis and a slow accretion of law are making the rules and not the judge himself or herself as this fount of wisdom who has a popular uh, mandate uh, to do justice in each and every case. Second, you're going to have judges be worried about the footsteps uh, that, that they see in the elective process. And we've certainly had this in Texas with party leaders calling for the defeat of some of the judges on, in their own party because they haven't towed the line enough. My colleague Raul Gonzalez was a Democrat on the Texas Supreme Court. He never voted for a Republican, but he did believe in the rule of law. And he was extremely unpopular with the Democratic Party to such an extent that when he was challenged in the 1994 Democratic primary and the governor and every other Democratic official endorsed his opponent, and he won anyway, despite having $3 million spent against him, at the Democratic State Convention, his defeated opponent was introduced along with the other candidates on the Democratic ballot and Judge Gonzalez was not invited. The Republican chairman of Harris County, our largest county, called for the defeat of two judges, uh, two Republican judges in Houston when they voted what he thought was the wrong way in the Lawrence case that you've heard discussed in the last panel. So there are footsteps and there are political consultants telling these judges all the time you need to behave this way if you want to win. Of course, do what your oath says, but uh, be polishing up that resume, too, at the same time. Uh, while you're working on that. And third, there is the uh, problem of getting yourself noticed for promotion or election to a higher office. I believe that a system that treats judges different uh, than other officials helps remind both the public and the judges that they do something different. Uh, I believe a system that in some way encourages the good judges to stay uh, and this and encourages the bad judges to go more than just a jump ball uh, works well. Cliff and I agree on this. We think if you're going to elect any judge at a level, the, you, the Supreme Courts of the state are the are the most likely place to have an open, contested, even partisan election because of the lawmaking role of those courts as writing a bunch of rules. They act like legislators a lot. They hold public hearings in a way that you don't do uh, on the strictly judicial decision part of your case. And they do make policy decisions even when they are putting their judge hat on in the way that the lower courts may do once in a term or never in a term. They are just applying the law. Uh, and so the further down you get onto the ballot, the more I think it, that we need to separate these officials out. Marriage selection has not been popular in recent years. It's been defeated in South Dakota, Florida, and Iowa, uh, and adopted in a very truncated form in New Mexico in the last 20 years. That, that's been the only places that have had elections. Uh, but Justice O'Connor and a number of people are calling for its revitalization right now because there is so much money pouring in from the tort fights uh, in all the states with partisan and nonpartisan elections. There's so much more increasing instability in who the judges are. Good lawyers don't want to be state judges. They rush and try to get a federal appointment. Uh, and as Leonard said, the state, the state courts is where you're going to be. That's where you're going to be litigating your cases, and you're going to care what the qualifications of that state judge are. Uh, and so... We come here and it's late at night and you'd rather be socializing, but you're fixing to be leaders in this profession. Your neighbors are going to ask you, who are these judges? How did they get there? Who should I vote for on my judicial election? Should I support this law that insulates judges or gives them a raise or a longer term? Uh, and you're going to be asked these kind of questions. Uh, and you need to and will have opinions on them. Uh, and as you sit and, and read your cases and notice that some of them come from state courts, uh, be thinking about this very important part of our federal system, uh, how we can strengthen it, how we can make it better. Uh, the Supremacy Clause requires state judges to take an oath because it recognizes that the, that the, the state system is different than the federal system. And this line has to be drawn and preserved. And state courts play a key role 
in the administration of justice uh, and in our system, which Bill Rehnquist himself called the crown jewel of the American experiment in government. Well, Tom and I have the uh, dubious honor of being the only thing standing between you and the hospitality suite, so uh, we will be uh, aware of that in our remarks. I have some prepared remarks, but before I get into them, I wanted to, uh, just to give you some context to understand them, talk a little bit initially about how Michigan selects its judges, uh, not because it's a model necessarily, but just because it would then give you a little better way to understand uh, the context of, of uh, my remarks. Uh, Michigan, since uh, 1851, Michigan came into the Union in 1837. Uh, in 1851, it went to an elected judiciary in this period of time that uh, Chief Justice Phillips talked about, where in the throes of uh, Jacksonian notions, uh, everything was being made elective. I would just add sort of an interesting thing, because I heard Dred Scott being mentioned in the previous panel. One of the real big spurs to have an elected judiciary in the upper Midwest, further west than here, uh, was Dred Scott. Uh, and uh, the desire by citizens to have uh, an ability to get their hands on the judges. Uh, in Michigan, um, we uh, have, a, I think, a utterly unique system. Uh, since 1908, the Constitution of 1908, the two great political parties have nominated candidates at convention for the Supreme Court. Uh, this was reaffirmed in 1963 with our current constitution. The reason for this, uh, and it's, it's quite a puzzling thing because the, you then run nonpartisan following that, uh, the reason for this was the uh, remarkable tendency for Michigan, Illinois had this too, to elect people with Irish names. And um, the, the concern was, I mean, I can say that without fear of offending because Taylor is Irish. It just isn't cool Irish. Um, <clears throat> uh, the, uh, the reason for this was that um, uh, for whatever reason, uh, there was tremendous electoral support for people with Irish names. And it was felt by the drafters of the Constitution in 1908 that that might not be the best qualification. And I think in today's... Um, in today's world, it would be quite likely that if we had um, statewide primaries for the Supreme Court, given how hard it is to raise money in a judicial primary, that you'd probably have a uh, Supreme Court full of former University of Michigan quarterbacks or something of that kind. So uh, our system, while it sounds strange, uh, has worked. The parties have in some sense uh, thought of themselves as performing in a fiduciary capacity and have tended to nominate um, strong people, especially when there was a likelihood of perhaps winning. Um, <clears throat> the campaigns then for the Supreme Court are run in a nonpartisan way. So when you have an electoral sweep in the partisan world, it doesn't really affect uh, the judiciary much. Most of our judges, and I should tell you one other thing, if you are the incumbent, you have an incumbent designation. So under your name, it says Clifford Taylor, Justice of the Supreme Court, when you stand for election. Um, in Michigan, by and large, uh, most of our local judgeships where uh, they run by primary, in other words, in a county race, you would not have a partisan nomination at all. You would run by primary, and, and two people would, of course, come through. Most of those people, when they secure election, are never again opposed. In large measure, I suspect this is because of the incumbent designation, but in any event, it has worked out to be the case. Michigan has a court of appeals and has had since uh, uh, 1965. Um, there's never been a court of appeals judge uh, defeated in the state. So unlike Texas, where I think there's a lot of tumult and, and, uh, and, and uh, change, uh, the Michigan system uh, d doesn't produce too much of that. Our judges tend to serve for a, a long time. Um, I've run... Uh, twice statewide in uh, 98 and 2000, and then uh, I will run again uh, this fall. Um, I should tell you one other variation on the theme, which makes our sort of a combination appointive elective system, which is that if in the middle of the term, it's an eight-year term for the Supreme Court, six-year term for all of the judges, if for whatever reason the judge leaves, the governor then makes an appointment. It's an appointment which is not subject to approval by uh, the Senate or by anybody else for that matter, but the judge has to stand at the next general election to complete the term 
that he has been appointed into. So in my case, I was appointed in 97 for a term that had the normal rollover in 2000, but I had to run in 98 to fill out the last two years of that term. Then in 2000, I had to run again. And of course, this being 2008, I'll run again. So with that background, then I'd like to just uh, give you my thoughts, uh, which are, are not totally at variance uh, with Tom's, but are uh, it, to some measure. Uh, I consider that any sophisticated observer must conclude that judicial selection in the United States today, uh, given how the people perceive what judges are doing, and given the dispute in the country as to the proper role of judges, is political. By that I mean that people, educated or uneducated, sophisticated or not, lawyers or not, are largely divided into two schools of thought as to what judges ought to do. This dispute has at its heart one question. What is the proper scope of a judge's authority? There is a traditional approach to judging that is advanced by conservatives and judges in the Scalia-Bork model. According to this traditional approach, judges are to interpret statutes or constitutions by attempting to discern the original understanding of the drafters or ratifiers. Judges are then to follow that original understanding. There is very little latitude in this approach for freelancing, and the judge's role is important but constrained. The other proposition advanced by liberals, which includes almost all the legal academy, supports a more aggressive role for judges, as you might have heard in the previous panel. This model, let us call it the Douglas Brennan Breyer model, sees judges with much more warrant to make policy in politically contentious areas, such as the death penalty, affirmative action, abortion, religion in the public square, sexual liberty, same-sex marriage, and the like, through vehicles such as living constitutions, unenumerated rights, as well as the infamous emanations and penumbras. I've got a position in this debate, and I bet you do too, but frankly, that is irrelevant. The point is that a split exists. Indeed, we need look no further than to the federal judicial confirmation battles of the last 20 years or so to be convinced that judicial selection has a hugely political component. No senator threatens a filibuster over anything less, surely. We cannot escape that selection is political, and the potential judge's position in this debate is really the most important thing that both the left and the right, assuming that the candidate is otherwise competent, want to know about. We all want a person who agrees with us in the proper role of a judge. This really cannot be wished away in any effort to construct a judicial selection system that acts as though this is not the current state of affairs. To try to do this is to ignore, as they say, the elephant in the room. Yet the merit selection approach, which asserts that all we have to do is find the best qualified lawyers and make them judges, asks us to operate as though there is no elephant. Indeed, that is merit selection's flaw. I am not in favor of merit selection, even though it has the benefit of a highly appealing title. I am, with certain misgivings, an advocate of popular election of judges. With the elections being full of robust issue debate, as anticipated by the United States Supreme Court in the decision which uh, Tom mentioned, uh, White versus Minnesota GOP. Now, I know, I know, there are problems with the election of judges as there are problems with the election of anybody. These include voter ignorance, voter misdirection by clever partisans and such. I'm not unaware of these problems, but at least the public election system acknowledges the elephant. Rather than having elites of one sort or another operating in what you might describe as a good government fog, make the decision, which I submit is a largely political one, judicial elections give the choice to regular, ordinary rank-and-file voters. We live in an age where it's common to condescend to regular folks as decision-makers. But I think this attitude should give us cause, because the notion that citizens can make wise choices is unquestionably at the very heart of our system of government. In considering this recent bias against elections, it's useful to recall the famous quip by the late William F. Buckley, Jr., who said, as I remember it, that he would prefer to be governed by the first 200 people in the Manhattan phone book than by the Harvard faculty. <laughs> there is much wisdom in that quip. In fact, we can see the same point 
In the penetrating and arresting observation of 18th century English statesman and political philosopher Edmund Burke, who argued for something roughly akin to popular government. Burke maintained that while individual Englishmen could make poor choices as a mass over time, the English people would not. Thus, such a government could work. It's a simple but still sophisticated notion. Indeed, our history and that of England bear out the truth of that insight. So I submit we should be reluctant to carelessly assume incompetence by our fellow citizens in making judicial choices, especially as history has shown them competent to make other difficult electoral choices. Moreover, I think upon closer examination, even merit selection advocates would have to admit that their favored system in practice is driven by politics, too. The difference is this. In merit selection, the politics are driven underground, whereas the politics of elections are public and obvious. In fact, studies of the flagship merit selection system in Missouri indicate that merit selection there doesn't remove politics from the process. It just makes the politics harder to unearth, as it is hidden from public scrutiny and voter reaction. The classic study of the first 25 years of Missouri merit selection, entitled The Politics of Bench and Bar, indicates that the attorneys who chose the lawyer members of the nominating commissions, and by the way, merit selection is always lawyer-dominated, tended to split into two groups, the plaintiff's bar and the defense attorneys. Their choices were founded in part on their clients' broad socioeconomic interests, and no one should be surprised that lawyers would consider their clients' interests and also their own in choosing those who choose judicial nominees. In other words, one type of politics, the politics of self-interest, replaced another. Also, when recently Justice O'Connor, as have others before her, contended that judicial elections have become political, I'm tempted to respond, you say that as if it's a bad thing. For those who advocate merit selection, political seems to be code for having the people involved in the selection of their judges. I'm not persuaded that the reputation or quality of state courts suffers because the people have that choice. Moreover, there is no evidence that states with merit selection have better judicial decision-making than those which elect their judges. How then do we justify taking the choice away from voters and placing it in the hands of a select few. I'm yet to be convinced by any of the arguments presented. What must be acknowledged, even if perhaps unwelcome, is that there is an increasingly national perception that courts are out of control. The appropriate response to that concern is not to take the people out of the selection process. Notice who is not calling for merit selection. Not the business community, not labor unions, not farmers, teachers, retirees, or even church pastors. Merit selection calls come only from either collections of lawyers or advocacy groups who are opponents of judicial elections. They are hardly the only people who care about justice. They, it seems to me, just want the whip hand in choosing who dispenses it. It seems to me that these people do not truly want to preserve judicial independence, which, for the most part, isn't really threatened anyway. What they want is to make as sure as they can that candidates who share their political views in the great debate over the role of judges will have a selection system that favors their prospects of making it to the bench. In short, merit selection is a solution that fails to concede the real problem. There will always be politics. Do we want it openly and robustly in the public square or behind closed doors with phony proclamations that the process is looking for the best person using impartial measures? In sum, then, I believe any selection system for the foreseeable future will have politics. We need to acknowledge that reality and evaluate methods of selection with that truth in mind. Public election will not flawless stacks up well in that regard when fairly set off against its main competitor, merit selection. Thank you. Uh, 
Chief Justice Phillips is going to do a quick reaction, and while he's doing that, I would encourage those of you who have questions to please uh, step up to the microphones. If I had done a better job on my opening, I wouldn't need to say this, but a few things I left out. I, I agree with Cliff that the citizens will make the best choice if they have the information. And if you have a race for Chief Justice Supreme Court, it's kind of the candidate's fault if they don't have the information. But when you're talking about dozens or, or scores of lower court races, that's a whole different issue. The newspapers and the press and even the bloggers are not covering these races. The only way the voters can find anything out is if the candidates themselves or some special interest group who's interested in their race raises a lot of money and spends it on paid advertising. Now, I thought when I was named Chief Justice that a bunch of widows and orphans would just flock to, you know, the noble cause of fair and impartial justice and all these contributions would flow in. So I opened a treasury and nobody contributed the first month or two. So I had to go out and call people and I found, you know, really it's only rich people and it's really only rich people that have or think they're going to have a case uh, in front of your court uh, or that you're going to set a precedent that will affect them that want to give. So the upshot of that is, is that these you either have an ignorant electorate or you have an electorate that's been informed by money that's trying to push the process one way or the other. I'm convinced that a judge doesn't have to be moved by that. I mean, the, the, the heart of being a judge is what Phil Orello Gordia said when they asked him how he could be mayor with all these contractor contributors. And he said, I'm an ingrate. And I think most good judges are an ingrate. But part of the problem is how the public perceives it. And what we have in Texas and in a growing part around the nations is there's a cottage industry. Both our business contributors and our trial lawyers form institutes to study contributions. And if they either win the election or they lose the election and their institute says the judge that won the election is bought, they're corrupt. Uh, and there's kind of a drumbeat in the newspapers. They either judges have self-funded, they're buying a judgeship for themselves, they're refusing to campaign and not advising the people of who they are. Or third, they've been bought and paid for by some special interest group. It's truly a no-win situation. I also agree that the people ought to be ultimately responsible for the judiciary and they ought to have the vote. But this popular election isn't always getting it. I mean, as Cliff said, no, no appellate, intermediate appellate judge in the history of Michigan has ever been defeated. Most judicial races everywhere are unopposed. When they're opposed, it's sort of a jump ball. The merit selection plan at least has the, has the merit of every judge gets voted on. So whatever the internal good that comes to a judge from that, by looking out at all those jurors and say, by golly, they're going to get to vote on me next year no matter what, of what, how you treat the witnesses, how you treat the lawyers in the courtroom, Whatever good comes out of the election process, you get that maximized in a system where every judge is voted on, even if uh, uh, not uh, with a live opponent. And finally, I would say that there is an elephant in the room, and it's politics. And that elephant is probably unavoidable at a state Supreme Court. But we don't have to have an elephant in trial courts and intermediate appellate courts. There really are people who know the law, who can apply that law without having an ideological edge. And the system that can best get those kind of people into the courtroom is what's going to preserve our justice system and give us all the best courts. Thank you. Go to questions now. Is that sure. Okay, great. Over here on the right. Hi, my name is Dan Burroughs. I'm from the University of Iowa. Um, I don't have a particular dog in this fight. I tend to prefer the, the federal appointive system. I think appointive offices have been um, unduly maligned for a while. But um, that said, my question has more to do with what I think Justice C might say. Justice C is a, a, luckily a loyal Iowa alum and agreed to come and speak to us uh, in the, you know, the far northern reaches of the country with snow like three feet on the ground. Um, all the way from Alabama, uh, and he gave us a little preview of what um, he was planning on speaking on here. And I think his point has to do with, I wonder how you'd respond to it, uh, mostly Chief Justice Phillips, but, but both of you if you would. Um, as far as elected judges perhaps being uh, too beholden to whoever supported their campaign, Justice C's point 
was that uh, lawyers and judges are social creatures, and we're going to be beholden to somebody no matter what. And so, therefore, it's a, a matter of personal and judicial integrity and not a matter of whether you were elected or appointed or went through a merit system because you kissed the ring of the president of your local bar or whatever. I mean, it has to do with uh, whether you have personal integrity, and that's the real question. I just wonder how you respond to that. I think at bottom that's right. But I do think, as I said earlier, you can design a system that, that's more likely to encourage that. But I think the real problem in Texas and in Michigan both, is, we have a few rotten boroughs in Texas, and I'm not going to defend them. But for most of our judges, the real problem is the public perception. It is the sense that if these people have been through a, an expensive campaign, they must feel beholden. And there's really no way that I ever found to assure a losing litigant whose opponent gave a lot of money to a judicial campaign that they lost on the merits. Because obviously they didn't see the merits that way. Uh, and so it is the perception of justice. And, of course, justice must be seen to be done as well as actually be done for our system to thrive. Um, I'm uh, here as sort of a stand-in for Harold, who had a uh, – Harold C., who had a, a, a family uh, – problem and, and uh, couldn't be here. But, and I've been on panels like this with Tom and Harold, and Harold uh, is a, a very fine proponent of the position. One of the things he argues, I think, which is very convincing, is that in merit selection, somebody selects the selectors. And given the kinds of stakes that exist in getting your kind of person on the bench, it's not too hard to imagine, as Harold describes it, that somebody calls up, let's say the Attorney General gets two appointments to the Merit Selection Committee, and somebody says, we'd like to give you $200,000 for your campaign, and all we'd like to do is have the veto over your two selections to uh, the committee. You know, a person could, uh, running for Attorney General, 200000 is hard to find, and a um, person might even uh, think that was a decent idea. Now, that is going to mean that that campaign contributor, very unknown to the world, um, is going to be dictating who uh, sits on the merit selection panel, at least with those two. And with all of these various selection systems, I mean, sometimes the chief justice gets a couple of choices, the governor gets a couple, and so on. But generally, these are all people who run campaigns and have to uh, worry themselves about getting reelected. And money will have its way. Now, I don't think that uh, these various systems that we're discussing here, I don't think any of them are perfect. Um, but merit selection to me is really the working of a, of a grand deception to, to tell people that we're just in here looking for the best guy. Let me tell you, uh, if you had merit selection in Michigan, I can tell you right now with 100% certainty the plaintiff's bar would be interested in people with only one thing in mind, and that would be that they will have uh, liberal positions on tort remedies, um, and, and the various things that the plaintiff's bar wants across the United States. There will not be a great emphasis on uh, academic credentials or any of those things, assuming bare minimums um, are met. Uh, this goes on in the electoral process, too, but at least it's open, and people get to sort through this in one way or another. Um, and uh, I'm not unaware of the fact that uh, people have concerns about uh, how uh, people who are getting contributions decide cases. There was just an interesting article in Michigan Lawyers Weekly, the trade journal for lawyers in this state, which chronicled the fact that in, in Michigan, very significant contributors uh, to the campaigns of Justice Young, Justice Corrigan, and me, and Justice Markman, the four conservatives on the Michigan Supreme Court, uh, had lost a lot of cases. Um, and uh, so I think people are... Uh, looking for people uh, of integrity who, <laughs> in Tom's inevitable way, are ingrates, and I think they think their judges uh, are going to be able uh, to receive contributions and understand that that should not influence their course of action. Next question. Um, my question is for Chief Justice Taylor. Uh, th th throughout your speech, you made a point that you cannot remove the politics uh, from the bench, and I totally agree, but I do believe you can remove the partisanship from it. And uh, my question goes into what, in, in the case of Michigan, what entitles the political parties to speak on behalf of the people, quote-unquote, 
by nominating the candidates for Supreme Court and why the distinction in how we elect people to the Michigan Court of Appeals. And the second part of my question is, what are your opinion and both Justice Phillips' opinion on either electing or appointing a justice for a definite term limit, say 10 years, and then you have to leave regardless? I'm not quite sure I'm going to do these in the order you asked them, but let me talk about term limits first. I really do think it's a lousy idea, and the reason is I think judges get better as they serve. I think this is an assignment that as you get more seasoned, you are a better judge. I think this is true probably with most fields. I think law professors probably are better after they've done this a while. I think doctors are better after they've done this a while. The whole rationale that they're somehow no longer representative, and that's why we ought to get them out of there, which is the usual rationale for legislative term limits, really doesn't apply to judges because judges are not supposed to be representative. As was mentioned here tonight, they are indeed in a counter-majoritarian or anti-majoritarian job in the first instance. As to why the political parties would have the power to select nominees for the court, I should tell you that there are other ways to get on the ballot. They're onerous. They involve founding your own political party or circulating a great number of petitions, and indeed incumbent justices do not need to get a nomination from a party. They can self-nominate by filing an affidavit. But that all having been said, I think the parties are a pretty decent proxy for the people of a jurisdiction. Maybe not perfect, but pretty good. Now, as to why there would be some partisanization in the judiciary, I think it has to be said that over the last 40 years, I think really from the time of the appointment of Justice White by President Kennedy, that from that time on, the two political parties really do have a different idea of what judges are to do. I believe that the two models that I talked about, the Scalia, Bork, Brennan, Douglas model, really reflects the two parties largely. And I think that this is in large part because of the huge privacy disputes that are coming through our jurisprudence, primarily Roe versus Wade. But the two parties do have very, very strong differences on what they think judges should do, what they think the role of a judge is. And I think it's hard to look at American politics and American judicial selection, especially at the federal level, and not conclude that. I think that the American left largely thwarted in their ability to get things done legislatively in the United States, has chosen to use the vehicle of courts to try to get what they want. And I think over the last 40 years, they've been really remarkably successful with this. As Lino Graglia, a professor at Texas, says, they don't always lose. They don't always win, but they never lose. And they are back, and they are with another approach to this and so on. So I think these are all parts of the stew that really need to be understood. I'm agnostic on long-term limits for judges. On long-term limits for judges, most of the world's constitutional courts have that, and I just don't know enough to know whether we should emulate that in state and federal here. I have a question for both the justices here, although half of it was just answered by Justice Taylor. But part of it is how much of this has to do with the politicalization due to the Roe v. Wade and the other social issues that dominate the media today. And when you have judges like Judge Reinhart in the Ninth Circuit, who's made some, I'll just say, rulings I certainly do not agree with, what can we do on a state level to make sure there is a check and balance from the people so we do not have a Judge Reinhart type situation here in Michigan or in the other students in their state? I don't know what we do to stop a Judge Reinhart from emerging from the mess. Let me just say this. I do believe that much of the turbulence 
in the American judicial scene is caused by Roe versus Wade. I really do. Um, I think it's a almost sacramental matter in the Democratic Party that that decision not be altered. Uh, George Will said a decade or so ago that as the norms of socialization weaken, law seeps into the vacuum. And I do think courts are probably being asked to do more and varied things than they have in the past. Uh, some of their traditional roles, like making tort law, is now largely being taken by legislatures, but they're getting new assignments. And, and uh, certainly the constitute, you know, lawyers are creative people. Constitutional language is always having new ideas <laughs> infused into it by creative litigants. Uh, I'm worried about what Cliff says about the the fundamental difference in the way the parties view the role of the courts in Texas. Nobody would articulate the split like Cliff does because everybody's against judicial activism. That's a code word, but they all mean different things by, by what a non-activist is. Over here. Hi, my name is Cliff. I go to Catholic in Washington, D.C. Um, basically, it's uh, for both of the systems that you advocate, do you think they are applicable only to a state level, or do you think they would be also beneficial to a federal level, or do you think that it would have been better to have kept the states more like the federal system of appointed judges? The federal system has a great advantage over the states in that there are a whole lot of watchdogs, so that when President Johnson was constrained to appoint Teddy Kennedy's driver to a federal bench, you know, the whole, the whole nation rose up and it, and it didn't happen. Uh, at the state level, you, do, you don't have that close a, a watch on the system. So, so I don't think the peer appointments would... I mean, they were tried at the state level and rejected 150 years ago. I don't think any... I mean, states flip around between partisan and nonpartisan. No merit selection states ever abandon it, but there are efforts to change it. But, but nobody's talking about going back to peer appointment. As to the federal system, I, I think the only thing I would say is at the, at the time we developed this lifetime tenure, people didn't live as long. Uh, and, and I don't see anything wrong with, looking, with thinking about whether the Federal Reserve System or something would be a, would be a model for, for some sort of tenure, year tenure. But uh, my, the principal thing I think is wrong with the federal system now is the, uh, the pressure on presidents of both parties to appoint people who are... Who, who are seen as being pre-committed to whatever the holy grail of that party is, and then the Senate's role in opposing <laughs> the minority, whatever the members of the Senate are not in the President's party role in trying to oppose that. I think their system is is, is lurching towards being broken uh, with these. The same thing that's happened in the state courts happening maybe on a bigger scale. The federal system. There are cottage industries. You know, that have been formed to support or oppose federal judicial appointments. And these people's, it's their rice bowl, depends on making a controversy even if none exists in real life. A uh, very dangerous system, a very dangerous problem, I think. Well, I, I don't know that it's, I can't imagine how you could do an electoral system for the United States for judges. I mean, there might be some way, but I haven't really thought about it much, and I'm not really too enamored of the notion in any event. Um, I think it must be said that as the United States Supreme Court has become more and more muscular in expanding what is constitutionally in the deep freeze, the parties have become involved in this. And I think that the normal safety valves that exist have been precluded in a lot of areas, and that probably seems murky, but let me just try to clarify it a bit. Two very interesting and, and to my mind, parallel uh, developments in the United States are interesting to look at. One is abortion and one is assisted suicide. Abortion was swept off the table uh, by the Roe Court. No more, no more participation in that debate by Americans. Uh, this is it. It's settled. Uh, don't go there. Uh, the reaction is 30-plus years of tumult uh, and, and uh, intensely uh, strong feelings about this in the American people. 
the second one is assisted suicide, which of course began in Michigan, uh, famously, with Dr. Gavorkian. Uh, and this eventually got to Washington, and the Supreme Court said, look, this is uh, not constitutionally uh, something of note, and we're going to let the states work this out. And the result has been it simply slides out of view. The states, Oregon has a pretty aggressive statute in this regard. Michigan has one not so aggressive, and other states have ones that I bet you most of us don't even know what they are. Why is that? That's because the political process is working. Political process is herky and jerky, and it isn't always pretty to watch, but it does get resolutions, and people feel that they can be heard. I think when you judicialize policy matters, uh, you are going to get a proud people unhappy about it. And that's, I think, largely what you see in the wars in the United States Senate over uh, uh, confirming people to the uh, Supreme Court. I've been uh, handed a note to just make an announcement, which is at uh, the close of this session. Uh, as um, we mentioned, there's a cocktail reception uh, to get there. Uh, you're going to go out the doors, down the hallway. Um, uh, you make a left and then a right out the door to the Monroe Street entrance uh, or exit of the building. There'll be some volunteers to direct you in the right direction. Um, we are... Five minutes over, so uh, and it's late in the evening, so I think I'm going to have to uh, call a close to our session. Come down here. Uh, uh, I want to thank uh, our speakers uh, for this evening, and I hope you'll do the same.